0: I, am, uh, I come from a Pentecostal background, so <laughs> so if at any point in the message you feel like shouting me down, give me an amen, like feel free. Uh, but right now there's there's no place that I would rather be. I remember uh, talking to John. Um, about like the the internship and the things that I would be doing. And when he mentioned that I would be getting to preach, this is the message that that was immediately like laid on my heart. And uh, it came to me at a time of need. So we're talking about suffering today. And um, it came to me in a time of need towards the end of the semester. I figure it was finals week, you know. Uh, <laughs> but it came to me, and it's out of Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So if you have your Bible, turn to that. Uh, if you want to Turn on your fibles. We also do that. Um, But in in this, uh, we read Paul's writing to a a church in Rome that he hasn't been to yet. And he's writing to them, and the little bit of context is they had left Rome because they had been kicked out by the Roman government, right? And so they're coming back into Rome uh, and they're establishing the church. And one of the things that they face is persecution and sufferings of other kinds. And so Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, uh, just kind of talking a little bit about what it means to suffer. And so it reads Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace, in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, I find it really interesting that all the time, uh, scriptures written thousands and thousands of years ago can meet us where we're at today, right? So uh, thousands and thousands of years ago, and it's still relevant in our everyday lives. And so I thought that's why it was important to give some context. Um, But so I'm a millennial, and uh, we're talking about ease. You want to talk about millennials? And that basically means that I barely remember life before the internet, nor do I want to remember life before the internet. <laughs> but as, as a millennial, like, reflecting on the generations that, that have come before, uh, we've always progressed in a way that we look for ease, right? So my, my generation looks different from my parents, which looks different from theirs, and the different struggles that they go through. Um, and this isn't to, like, knock technology or anything. It's not inherently bad or anything like that. But... I'm just saying, like, the, the generations have always found a way to try and make life easier. So what, is this, what does this look like? I know Paul talks about peace, having peace through Christ. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what's, what does that mean if I'm a suffering Christian? What does it mean if I'm going through something as a Christian? Because I'm supposed to have peace, peace through Christ, right? And so when we look at, when we look at uh, the life of Christ, that's always a good starting point. When we look at the life of Christ, we see that there was, I mean, ease was not promised from day one. He was running for his life from King Herod, and throughout his life, he faced different things, and and uh, when he started his ministry, continually, the Pharisees and Sadducees and different uh, religious groups would try to capture him and, and get him to say something, to slip up, so that they would have a chance and a reason uh, to kill him, and so... From the from the beginning to the end, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying and he's going through some serious stress. I mean, he knows what's about to he knows what's about to go down. And when he was praying, he began to sweat blood. I've done my fair share of like late night papers. Knowing that, knowing that there's practice in the morning or uh, lifting or conditioning, whatever. But I've never been to the point where I'm stressing so much that I sweat blood. Uh, but, so you, you may be thinking to yourself, though, that this is, this is God, right? You can't compare yourself to God like that. But he was also man at the same time. He faced the same trials and the same struggles that we face day in and day out. And then we look at Paul, right? He wrote half of the New Testament, uh, he is a he's a key figure in spreading the gospel. He's done he had done many great things, yet he was no stranger to suffering. And he, had re- he had received 195 stripes, 195 lashings, because they would give them in sets of 39. Because if you gave him the full 40, that means he was supposed to die. He was imprisoned for years at a time. He suffered shipwrecks, he was stoned, he faced frequent hunger, cold, and nakedness. And this is just according to 2 Corinthians. <laughs> so i 'm sure his life was was easier as he uh, before he gave his life to Christ, he says, "I know what it is to have, and I know what it is to have not." The Bible continues to provide numerous examples of faithful christ followers who suffered, so who are we as christians to to think that a life, of, life living Christ after what he did, and, and the, he set the standard of how we should live. If he suffered, if Paul suffered, all these great biblical characters, if they suffered, how do we escape suffering? It's something universal. It's something, it doesn't care uh, what race you are. It doesn't care age, income, level of education, none of that. Suffering is something that we just can't escape. And so before diving into, before diving into the, different, uh, the different things that I want to talk about, I would first like to talk about that Christianity should be communal as well, right? So I play football for Greenville University, and uh, last season was my junior season, and it did not go as planned, right? Okay, so week three, I rolled my, my right ankle, and yeah, you feel my pain, um, but I had rolled my ankle, my right ankle, and that one was okay, played week four. Week five comes around, and it's, it's about the second play of the game. I roll my right ankle again. Real bummer, right? There's nothing like a, a stubborn athlete who's trying to get back out there. So me, did the obvious thing, I'm like running around trying to put pressure on my, on my leg, and, and I'm like, coach, put me back in, put me back in. And he's like, no, you'll get hurt. And uh, I somehow convinced him. Second half, they throw me back in the game and it's about the third play of the second half, I roll my left one. So now I had two bum ankles, and I was just out of luck. The frustrating thing about this is the rest of the season, the rest of my body was healthy. Every part of my body was healthy except my ankles, and this is how the body of Christ works as well. Something as small as an ankle or something, as, something small can affect the entire body and how it functions. And so when we talk about uh, fellowship and community and being communal, it means that we're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Christ's death and resurrection unifies us in a way where my problems become your problems and your problems become my problems, right? And so Paul uses some pretty bold words. He says, therefore, we have been justified, through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. And lately, we've been talking about uh, wisdom, right? Worry versus wisdom is the series that we're going through. Um, but what is wisdom? And one way you can define wisdom as is that it is a healthy fear or a healthy reverence of, uh, of God's power, and in that, it, uh, it respects what he defines as good and evil, And in the Old Testament, there are three uh, wisdom literature books. There's Proverbs. And you can think of Proverbs as a young, brilliant, like energetic teacher, right? And the theme throughout Proverbs is that good things happen to the wise. Good things happen to those who uh, who respect what God has to say about good and evil. And then, so good things happen to those. And then the foolish get bad things. And so scholars argue that it's a little bit simplistic. And then the second book of the wisdom literature is Ecclesiastes, the one that I want to talk about. And Ecclesiastes is kind of like the middle-aged professor who's a little bit wiser. And uh, he says it's, it's not that simple. Sometimes bad things happen to, to, you know, the wise, and sometimes good things happen to the foolish. And so if you, if you want to, like, have a little phrase to it, Proverbs is more like the early bird catches the worm, and Ecclesiastes is like the early worm gets eaten. And, <laughs> and then we come to Job, and Job is like the super, super old philosopher who has lived it all, and he has stories to tell, and the theme throughout Job is he's wondering, is God truly just and truly wise? He explores what it means to suffer as a, as a righteous person. And so in Job, it starts off in the heavenly courts, and there's an accuser the Hebrew word is satan. It just means accuser. And so the accuser is having a conversation with God and God's like, well, have you seen Job? Job is killing it down there, man. Job is doing everything that, that, that I ask of him, everything he's doing right. Job even slaughters animals for his children's sin. That's how righteous this man is. And so, so the devil's like, or satan is like, well, that's okay. That's probably because you've, had a hedge of protection around him. Job has seven, seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 1,000 oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants that oversee all of that. I got bored last night, and I decided to Google it. I was like, what is Job's net worth? LAUGHTER And there was a calculation that it's somewhere around 20.8 million. But if you have, where's my economy buffs, the finance guys? Like, take away inflation, and that is a crazy amount of wealth in his time. He's basically like Bill Gates of his, of his time. And so God agrees to this, and he's like, all right, if I, t- if I allow you to take away all of these things, like, I, I, I think Job would still honor and, and glorify me. And so that's exactly what the accuser does. He takes away all of these things. When Job is just chilling one day, uh, one of his servants says, someone attacked your donkeys and oxen, put your servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Immediately as he says that, another one comes up and says, hey, fire fell from the sky and killed all of your sheep, the livestock, all of them, killed all of your servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And then the third one, says, hey, a house fell on all of your children and killed all of your servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And so Job, you know, he's distraught. Anyone would be distraught. Keep in mind, his wife is also going through the same things. And she's like, Job, what are you doing? Curse God. You serve a God that would let this happen to you? So now not only has he lost his children, his livestock, his wealth, but also the person who, you know, who he's with, who, who's doing life with him, sees no point in what he's doing anymore. Job is alone, and he sits and he mourns. And then there's, there's some of Job's friends. You're like, yeah, this is about to be a good time. Job is finally going to have some community. They sit with him for seven days, and they say nothing. They're just mourning with him because he's in so much distress. And after the seven days, they they speak and this is when things go downhill because you think they're you think they're good friends and then they say, "Job, you must have done something." <laughs> Cuz they're operating under like kind of the proverbs type of wisdom where it's the good things happen to the wise and bad things happen to the foolish. So if bad things are happening to you, Job, you must have done something to provoke God. And Job is like, "No, I'm blameless." And he is. That's, that's what God said in the beginning of, of the book, right? And so the accuser goes back up to God and says, hey, I bet you, you take his health away, he'll really curse you. Because he's, he's still glorifying God even though it's rough. And so God's like, okay. So at this point, he's, he's depressed. His friends don't understand. His wife doesn't understand. He's going through all these things, and he's pretty much alone and he flip-flops between, hey, God has to be just. There's, there must be like a grand plan. And there's no way God can be just if I'm righteous, if I'm blameless, and I'm suffering through all these things. And so Job calls out to God, and he's like, God, you need to come down here and make a case for yourself because things are getting wild. And so God does. And in Job 38, we see God's response. And it might surprise you. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, I will ask you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it, and on what footings set? Or where lay its foundation and cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for praise? If I'm Job, I'm like, what? I called you here to make a case for yourself. You're talking about how the stars and the moon and all these things, how they, how they align, how intricate it is. And so God's answer to Job is really confusing. But how many of us have been in a time in a, in a situation, in a place where we call on God and we get a confusing answer. Am I speaking to somebody? Or we call out to God and we don't feel like we hear anything. It's like a void. There's, there's no answer. And so this is the wisdom of Job. And it's, it's, I'll be honest, it's kind of frustrating to me because Job never understands why he went through all of this. It's like dramatic irony that we know because we're reading But to Job, he has no idea the situation, like anything that happened in the heavenly courts, all of that. So the wisdom of Job is that God's ways are simply too complex. Because he goes on to describe these two beasts, behemoth and leviathan. And some scholars think it's like dinosaurs, some think it's hippos. But he describes how powerful the jaws of these animals are, the scales that they have that no man can pierce them. There's not a fish hook in the world that can capture them. And yet in all of this, they're still a part of God's good and holy plan. So what do we learn from Job? Because we're still seeing righteous people, righteous suffering. And uh, people day in and day out, regardless of, of where you're at in life, you're following Christ, yet you still suffer. What does that mean as a Christian who is going through that. There's no cut and dry answer to suffering. I mean, I could sit here and talk all day and we'd still just scratch the surface. Um, but here's, here's what happened to Job. Job's suffering allowed him to have an authentic and real experience with God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm, when I'm suffering, that's usually when I'm in the Word and praying, Right? I mean, I'm on my knees and I'm calling out to God. I'm trying to read the scriptures. I'm trying to see, God, what is going on. Not only does Job's uh, experience have uh, have him experience a real encounter with God, it also shows him how human he is. When God comes out and he's like, hey, look, you have all these little livestock. I have the whole world that I'm governing, the whole universe. I'm, I'm in charge of the stars. I'm in charge of the moon. I'm in charge of these, these things that you don't even see on a day-to-day basis, things that you wouldn't even understand. And so at this moment, I'd like to call the worship team up. But as we continue reading in Romans, Romans 5, Verse 3 says, not only so, but we also glory, we also rejoice in the sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Paul is revealing something here to the church in Rome. And it's this, that when the suffering of the righteous occurs, not if, when the suffering of the righteous occurs, it is not in vain. He's saying that all these things, perseverance, character, hope, all of these things are just some of the things that happen when we suffer. In the middle of our troubles, God assures us that he is present. And that we can count on him and we can depend on him. And we serve a God who is powerful enough to use our weaknesses to help us grow. God flips the script. Because these things that are supposed to break us, these things that are supposed to hurt us, these things that are supposed to keep us down, God uses to build us up. And it's not for our glory, but it's because of his glory. We find ourselves calling on God, and He answers. It may not feel like that, but there's an answer. If we get an eternal perspective in this, like if I have to suffer a hundred years on Earth and then die and go to go to have eternal life, go to heaven, then it's worth it. And this is the that Paul, this is the piece that Paul is talking about. That in the storms of life. We know that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead rises helps us rise from the bed. And this isn't to negate like the sufferings that we face. This isn't to belittle them. And I'm not up here saying that you, you're not suffering enough or any of that. But I'm saying that it is not in vain. These things that happen to us, the sufferings day in and day out, it's a, part of, it's a part of the grand scheme of things since the fall of man that these things happen. So Christianity isn't a, a promised peace in the sense of there's a lack of suffering. Christianity is knowing who died on the cross and what he can do. And so somewhere along the way, I think we got things twisted uh, because I think we're We're influenced by society, and we believe that Christianity means to have everything together, right? We think that being a Christian means you have all your ducks in a row, all those things, but that's not what Christianity is. We struggle in silence about things like mental health. We struggle about, God forbid, we talk about financial problems. Sometimes we downplay our physical ailments. Trying to seem, I call it hashtag blessed, hashtag blessed. Uh, because you're selling an image. You're selling an image that, hey, look at my life. This is what being a Christian means. I have, I got this new job. I got this awesome house. I'm happy. I'm doing this. All these things that I'm really proud to to tell you about because they are blessings from God. But we hide all of the, all of the messy things. We hide everything that is hurting us. We hide everything that that is, is killing us deep down inside to... to Help us, I don't know, sell an image. And that's not what Christianity is. And so I want to tell you that the church isn't a museum for good people. No. It's a hospital for the broken. And so when we talk about the the different sufferings that we face and we encounter, we have God. But that doesn't mean that we won't experience these things. And so this is my challenge to us as the body of Christ, that we would allow ourselves to share our burdens with each other, not just in the four walls of this church, but in in community with each other, that we break the chains that say we should suffer alone, right, the self-made mentality that we've developed, and we challenge ourselves to carry the burdens of our brothers and sisters.